you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up uh, your Bible to the book of Isaiah. All the children get tortured in children's church, just to let you know that. <clears throat> Not really, they don't. title of the message this morning is the joy of advent but before we uh, look into the text with any detail let us pray Jesus thank you for the salvation that we have through the eternal covenant that you have made for us and like we just sang about we long for the glorious day of your return when we will celebrate the second advent and all things will be made new. And so this morning, our heart's cry is, as Paul says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And until you do, may we be found faithful as we look into your word and as we lay our lives open before you. May you strengthen us with your divine presence and by your Holy Spirit. May you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to love and minds to comprehend the wonderful truths of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Isaiah 61, 1 through 11 is our is our text this morning, and so if you found it, say word. Okay, follow along as I read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. Let me stop there before I go any further, and uh, I realize maybe I should uh, I should give a little background about where we're at. We are uh, we are. As Drew mentioned, celebrating Advent, walking through Advent, that is the coming of Christ. And so we, we celebrate Christmas at this time of year, which, which is where we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. He, he's come as the baby in the manger. We celebrate that during this time, but this time is about Advent, the first coming, and the, the real truth that He is coming again. And so we've been walking through that, and, and today, this, this Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent, we are walking through joy and seeing the joy of Advent. And so that's why, we've, that's why I've selected this text for us to look through. But in this text, the prophet Isaiah, he is, he is prophesying about the Messiah, the servant, the Messiah, who is going to come. And so this is God's words through the prophet Isaiah, but we really have the words of the Messiah here speaking through the mouth of the prophet as it foreshadows His coming. And so now, let's pick back up in verse 2. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of fainting, so they will be called... Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the, the desolations of many generations. 
strangers will stand and pasture your flocks and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of shame, you will have a double portion and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things to grow that are sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. This is a tremendous passage, and as I began studying it this week, I, I realized it would be quite a feat to get it all in uh, into one sermon because there are so many things that Isaiah speaks about. But, but I, I want us to begin by, by really seeing the kind of the big picture here, and, and that is this. The joy of Advent calls believers to embrace our role as a holy people our role as a as a royal priesthood that is that is really the joy of advent and what advent calls god's people to to do as we look to his coming and so uh, as believers we are we're set apart by god through christ's eternal covenant to live and to be shaped into his image in order to proclaim his glory and so i want to share maybe a a captivating thought with you, at least it was a captivating thought for me. The joy of Advent is not found in receiving of material possessions as we so often participate in this time of year. And this is something that I want our children to catch. And, and I pray that many of the children in, in our congregation will catch this and it will be taught them. But not only children, also adults even, but that we would see this, that the joy of Advent is not found in receiving material possessions, but in the fulfillment of the Messiah's promise. It's in the fulfillment of the Messiah's promise that we have true joy. Why? Because as this passage states this morning, he says he will come and the spirit of the Lord will come upon him. And as he comes, he will uh, he will bring the favor of the Lord and there will be blessing and there will be salvation. And there will be this eternal covenant that is established for all people who profess and believe upon this Messiah. And we also know that he's coming again. And he is coming again on that day. You see, it says in, in a few verses, we'll see where where it speaks of the the year of the Lord's favor. And then it speaks of the day of judgment. And so there is a favorable year of the Lord, and then there is a day of vengeance of our God. And there's the favorable year, which is the time, the, the, the long-term time of God's 
blessing and joy, but then there's also the day of judgment, which is quick and swift. So this morning, as we look at the joy of Advent, the the first thing I, I want us to see in this passage is the role of the divine servant, the role of the divine servant. In fact, if you recognize verses one and two from the New Testament, you are right. If you thought about Luke chapter four, Luke chapter four, verses uh, verses 16 through 22, the Lord Jesus in his ministry began by by saying this in his public ministry. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue and on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and he found the place where it was written. And the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20, and then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus gives us commentary on Isaiah chapter 61 and in Luke chapter 4. And the commentary is this, that this this prophecy spoken through the lips of Isaiah finds its place in its fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And for that reason, there is great joy for all who believe upon him. And so the role of the divine servant is seen in three ways in verses one through three. The first way is we we see him as the preacher or as the herald. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That is the the sovereign God. His spirit is upon me. And here's why. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news or to proclaim the good news to the afflicted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. In other words, a servant here of verses one through three is none other than the promised Messiah who has been anointed by the spirit and the power and the presence of God to come and to proclaim the word of God. He comes as one who brings the word from God on high and he is the one who is anointed to proclaim and to bring this good news. Think about the gospel of John in chapter one, verse 18 And in John 1.18, if you recall, when we, uh, when we walked through that passage, it said, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. In other words, what John was telling us was that in this Messiah, in the person of Christ, we have one who is able to explain to us who the Father is. And he is able to exegete or or open up our understanding to see who the Father is. And then we later see in John chapter 5 where Jesus claims to speak that he can't speak anything unless the Father who he sees and hears gives him those words to speak. He can't do anything unless he sees the Father doing it. And so we have... In the person of the Messiah, the one who has come, the one who has come and he has been anointed to speak these words, to be a proclaimer, a herald. Speaking the words of God. The tremendous truth about this herald, though, is that he doesn't just speak or or tell the good news alone. He's the one sent by God, not only to speak, but also to accomplish the good news and to bring it about. And the real truth is he has accomplished what no one else can. 
Christ himself has accomplished the work that only he could accomplish. That is satisfying God's wrath against sin that he might establish an eternal covenant between God and his people and restore fellowship between God and his people. And so we see those whom he has come to proclaim this good news to. And who is it? It's the afflicted. He has come to proclaim this good news to the afflicted. This word afflicted, it it not only speaks, some translations may render it poor, but it it doesn't just mean those who might be financially poor or of, of a low socioeconomic status. It speaks generally of all who are afflicted, all who are distressed over sin and and distraught by various trials in life. This fits with the ministry of Christ as he walked, uh, as we have it recorded through the Gospels in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13 say this, Jesus heard them and he replied, he said, "It's, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, right? But those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. He comes and brings good news to the afflicted. Who are the afflicted? But they are sinners. They're me and you. They're those who who recognize and see that we have no hope of obtaining eternal salvation and entering into the presence of God. Why? Because we are sinners. We're the sick and the afflicted. The psalmist says in 2516, kind of in this vein, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. One commentator said this about waiting upon the Lord and about this good news. He he says he had not come to announce good news to those who were comfortable and in control. But to those who are in deep trouble, to such persons, God's victory over all that is holding them in bondage is truly good news indeed. See what Christ has done as he's come to proclaim this message of good news and hope to those who are afflicted, to those who are trapped in sin and caught up in sin. Those who seem to be caught in, in, in maybe the habitual sin or those who seem to be caught up in, in struggling and can't seem to break free from, uh, from, from sin and, and those things which ensnare them. And so here's what he says. He comes and he proclaims not only this good news to the afflicted, but he proclaims liberty to the captives there in verse 1. You see that? Liberty to the captives and, and freedom to the prisoners to people who were in captivity and and those who were prisoners, this was truly good news. They recognized that they needed somebody who would liberate them, who would deliver them from their bondage. And what Isaiah uses here is actually the language of of the law of Moses, which stipulated the year of Jubilee, this, this proclaiming liberty to captives. The year of Jubilee would happen every 50 years. 
and servants would be set free. Debts would be suspended among the people of God. And the land that had been taken would be reverted back to the families who had originally owned them. This was the law in Leviticus 25.10. But this law was almost never obeyed. It came to symbolize the, the time when the Lord would liberate and restore all things for his people. And what the Messiah is claiming, what the, what the servant is proclaiming here, he is proclaiming liberty to captives. He's proclaiming that he is, uh, he is bringing this good news of, of deliverance and of, of restoration. And even today, the Messiah's words speak to us. He, he calls us who are afflicted. He calls us who, who, who come to him, and, and he proclaims to us that there is liberty in him. There's liberty from captivity to sin. There's liberty from affliction. There's liberty from being imprisoned to sin. Because the real truth is this, that, and this is the good news, that Jesus has the power to set people free. He has the power to liberate those who are in bondage. He has the power to liberate souls from being, uh, from being caught up in sin and in captivity to sin. And he can free us from the sinful lifestyles that we, we just can't seem to break away from and to leave. And this is really the good news. is Because, as we'll see in a minute, the, the one who mourns is the one who recognizes that he or she truly does not have the ability in and of himself to rid him or herself from the bondage of sin and from this struggle that is pulling at us and warring at us. There must be help from somewhere else. And the help from somewhere else, it is this one, this servant, this Messiah who has come proclaiming good news, liberty for the captives, freedom for the prisoners. He can break the chains and set us free, set you free from the sinful lifestyle that you just can't seem to part ways with. He can, he can break the emotional chains that are keeping you in captivity. He can break the habitual cycle of addiction by his power and his sustenance and his, his righteousness in our lives. But not only is he, not only is he the preacher or the herald, but we also see him as the, the physician or the healer. He is the one who has come to, to bind up the brokenhearted, he says there in verse 1. And verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes. Here's, here's your physician, your healer. He is the one who comes and he, he bandages up the broken heart and he has compassion he is the one whose words are accompanied with power. He doesn't just speak this word. He truly gives power for change and for transformation to happen. It speaks to the compassion of the, the promised Messiah and of those who are, who are despairing of life and, and broken by life. Those are the brokenhearted. And it says that he has come, this good news, he has come to bind up the brokenhearted. He's really speaking to those who have really lost all hope and continuing in life. Those who are just ready to give up. Those who, because of 
despair and discouragement have all but given up on life. They don't know where to turn. They don't know where hope is to come from. They can't see a way out of whatever, whatever circumstance or situation they're in. You, you probably know people who are at that place. You may not know that they're at that place, but I'm sure there are people in our lives who are dealing with difficult issues and struggles like this. Hear the message of joy this Advent. Christ has come bringing hope, bringing joy, and He is the one that can liberate. He is the one that can come in and heal the brokenhearted. Here's why. Because the Messiah is endowed with power from on high, and He is ready to bandage the brokenness of life. For all those who turn to Him in faith, He is ready to heal the brokenness. He is the only one who can truly give hope and healing. So he <clears throat> binds up the brokenhearted. And he speaks of this favorable year of the Lord. That is the, the incarnation of the Messiah, verse 2. He's come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He's come to speak of that which is coming by the person of Christ, the Messiah. He will come in the form of a baby. He will enter into this world and he will walk this earth. In the incarnation of the Messiah and Christ coming, it says that he will come and and in his coming, because he comes, he will comfort those who mourn. He will come to those who are who are mourning over their sin, who are mourning over the difficulty of life. Now, let us not forget that the people of Israel, the children of God, they were struggling in in the midst of being deported, being uh, being in the midst of Babylon, wondering where God was, why they were walking through such difficult times. And so this passage, this this prophecy, it has it has immediate effect for them, but they are they are filled with hope and encouragement to be able to look forward to that day when Christ himself will come and he will comfort all those who mourn. This comforting that Christ brings to those who mourn, it's the comfort that he brings to those who are mourning over sin and those who are mourning over the struggle that they have with sin, even in this present life. Those who recognize their inability to live as holy vessels unto the Lord, as God has called his people to live. Think about Matthew chapter 4, the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord Jesus is uh, speaking of the Beatitudes, and he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, right? God's desire is to comfort those who mourn, those who are his children. That would be mourning over loss of a loved one, mourning and grieving over the difficult circumstances that we might find ourselves in life, mourning over the habitual sin that's in our life and we recognize it's just not fitting with with God's design and God's work, what he wants to do in and through us. Hear the word of Christ this morning. He is ready and willing to comfort those who mourn. It's a surety. He wants to comfort the mourning. 
and walking in this covenant relationship with Christ, we we find comfort for for those times when we mourn and when we when we cry out to God in the midst of desperation because we just can't do it. We just can't seem to live holy enough. We just can't seem to be righteous enough. But here's the good news. Christ is our righteousness. And it's because of what he has done in bringing us into covenant relationship that we don't have to be good enough. But we'll see in a moment that doesn't excuse sin in our lives. We are to come to him. We are to live righteously and follow him and walk with him. Spurgeon in a sermon, Beauty for Ashes, said this about mourning. It begins in most hearts with lamentation over past sin. I've been broken. God's just uh, I've broken God's just commandments. I've done evil against my God. I've destroyed my soul. My heart feels this and bitterly mourns. And then he says, it's one thing to say formally, I'm a miserable sinner. It's a very different thing to be one. This morning, it's true morning. It's recognizing our sin before God. And having a, a godly sorrow in our life, it's truly being broken because we long for his presence and his return. We long for that day when all things will be perfect and, and all things will be stored and we will experience the joy and the satisfaction of walking with our Lord. The comfort that God offers through the year of favor. Here's the connection. It's the promised Messiah that he will accept those who mourn over their sin because he has satisfied God's wrath and he's reconciled us to God the Father. And so our mourning, our mourning then can be turned into joy because we have a hope of that which will come. We have a hope of all things being restored. And it really points to a few chapters back in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 10, says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering, speaking of Christ, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So we see the role of the divine servant as the one who is the preacher or the, the proclaimer, the herald. We see him as the physician, as the healer, the one who bandages up the brokenhearted and, and, and comforts the mourners but we also see him as a liberator and we see him as a liberator there in verse 3 where he comes to restore and to transform do you see there in verse 3 to grant those who mourn in zion giving them listen to how he describes this in the contrast giving them a garland instead of ashes that's flower or or a wreath or a nice headdress that's worn to parties the oil of gladness instead of mourning when people were in mourning, they would shave their head and they would put ashes on their head and they would dress in sackcloth and not in festive clothes. 
They would mourn. They would be sad. And he says the mantle of praise, instead of a spirit of fainting, oftentimes what accompanied mourning was fasting and not eating. And there would be this, this faint feeling and just weariness and weakness and wanting to give up. And here's what Christ is doing. Here's what this prophecy is speaking about for what Christ does when he comes as the liberator. He is the one who who restores this mourner, the picture of the mourner with the ashes and and wrapped in sackcloth and the weight of sin and, and the whole life being at a point of despair. It's contrasted with the picture of the person who's celebrating with the headdress on and dressed in, in fine clothing and wearing the costly oil, uh, 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 the, the anointing oil, and wearing a garment of praise instead of a, a garment of sackcloth. Here's the picture. This ought to be the life of the believer. That our lives would be filled with this type of, of praise, this type of joy. That our lives would be, would be contrasted with those who, who mourn, who are in ashes, are, are wrapped in sackcloth and, and the weight of sin at the point of despair. Because when we look to Christ, we see the joy that Christ brings. We see the promise and the hope of life. And then he speaks in verse 3 there of them being transformed and really having a new name. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You know, when we think of oaks, we think of large trees, stability. We think of of permanence. We think of abundance. And this passage is speaking about the believer, those who are trusting in God. They will be called these oaks of righteousness. They will be planted firmly. They will be stable. Why? Because God has planted them, the planting of the Lord. Why? So that he may be glorified. And here's the point in all of it. It would be that as God plants these oaks of righteousness, the believer, that the life of the oak of righteousness, the life of the believer would would give God praise and and honor. It would point to his glory. This really is God's design and calling people to himself, that you and I as children of God would be pointing others to his glory And it speaks of his grace in order to save us and and his power to enable us to live righteously because he himself has planted us. He himself is the source. But you see, the role of the Messiah as divine servant does something else. It, It reveals the faithfulness of God through an everlasting covenant. The role of Messiah as divine servant reveals the faithfulness of God through an everlasting covenant. In verse 8, we see the character of God on display. For I, the Lord, love justice, right? I, I hate robbery in the burnt offering. And he speaks, I will faithfully give them their recompense and, and make an everlasting covenant with them. What is this everlasting covenant that we've been speaking about that he promises to make with his people This everlasting covenant, it is this promise that he will bring his people into salvation. And it's one that he will keep. It it is his word that he will keep. We can take confidence in knowing that God will bring about salvation through the covenant of Christ. 
the character that's put forth here in verse 8 is he says, I, the Lord, love justice. He is one who is loving justice and he is one who is hating robbery, robbery and, and, and hating iniquity. In fact, it says, I hate robbery in the burnt offering. In other words, what he's saying is, I, I don't want someone to come to me who is halfway committed. I don't accept the worship of those who are halfway committed robbery in the burnt offering. Whenever someone came to offer a, a burnt offering, they would offer the whole bull, usually a bull. They would offer the whole thing. There would be none that would be kept back for their own benefit. What's he saying here? He's saying that when those who had come to me, but instead of offering their whole self to me in service and in worship, they would keep back some. He's saying that. I don't delight in that type of worship. I don't delight when my people come to me in that way. And so he says he loves justice and God desires that his people would be a just people. Following after him. And the point is that as God makes this everlasting covenant with his people and calls us into this covenant, he desires that we would live in a way that's like him where we are we are growing in the image of God we are growing into the likeness of God because in fact in verse 6 look he says that we are called to be priests but you will be called the priests of the Lord you will be spoken of as ministers of our God you see that God's people will be the priest of God it's not a term that's reserved just for clergy or just for pastors this is a term that's meant for all of God's people, for us, that we would be the priests of God. Being the priest of God, is a, it's a position of responsibility, right? You think about the role or the responsibility of, of the priest, especially in this day. They are to intercede on behalf of the people before God. It's, it's a position of responsibility whereby God's people Get this, we'll point the nations to see God's glory. This is God's design. They will look to God as the one true God and Savior when they see the priest of the Lord living for him. You see, the call is to righteous living. Peter says it this way in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. And in verse 9 he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For the church today, listen, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, God's desire in making this everlasting covenant with his people is that his people would live righteously. Is that his people, you and I, we would be, we'd be a kingdom of priests serving God. And as the nations look upon, we would be pointing them to see his glory. 
that we would be people who are interceding on behalf of others, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, we, we'd be ambassadors for Christ. We'd be ministers of reconciliation on behalf of Christ. Being priests of the Lord means that we, in our lives, are living for His glory. We're living righteously. We're seeking to follow Him and pursue Him. And even in chapter, in, even in verse 5, we see that all the nations are, are blessed through God's people as they take their place in service. Verse 4 speaks of the, the restoration that's promised. It continues to show the faithfulness of God, right? Verse 4, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. Where is Assyria today? Dust. Where is Babylon today? Dust. Where is Jerusalem today? God is faithful. God is faithful to carry out his promise He is faithful to lead his people. His everlasting covenant has been established and he desires that his people would be faithful to bring this covenant to the nations. For us today, though, I also want us to see this damage that verse 4 is speaking about, the the need to rebuild the ancient ruins and to raise up the former devastation and the repairs and this mourning and the the binding up of the brokenhearted in verse 2, proclaiming liberty to captives and and freedom to prisoners. I I want you to hear me this morning. This, God can repair the damage that, that we even see today through the hope and the joy of the gospel. He can repair the damage of generational poverty, something that is epidemic in our uh, across this city, across the nation through the hope of the gospel. God can restore broken marriages and heal the brokenness of people's lives through the hope of the gospel. God can rebuild the devastation that's caused by addiction and sin in one's life through the hope of the gospel. God can stop and and will stop the generational breakdown of families if we as his people will embrace our role as as priests to the Lord. If we in the church would get serious about this calling to be priests of the Lord, the call to righteous living in this passage is, is clear. We're to be these ambassadors for Christ. We're to be a kingdom of priests for his glory. And as we experience the faithfulness of God and his everlasting covenant, verse 7 speaks about the abundant supply, the the double portion that is given. And that is that all of God's promises and and prophecy are are fulfilled for all eternity. Verse 9 speaks about God's people being the, the light of the world. God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to hold his people up. Verse 9, he says, Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples, and all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. When's the last time in the news you heard about the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Amalekites? We could go on, right? All the ites that we see. When's the last time that you've heard in the news about Jerusalem? point is clear that there is 
and, and this is really just to be honest, this is always the struggle for me because I, I know that the, the church is also the, the people of God and that we've been grafted in, but then there's also the, the nation of, of Israel and, and there, there seems to be this blessing that is also reserved in this calling for the people of God to follow God. But, but here's, the, here's, the, here's the message that God desires for his people to be the light of the world. They will be witnesses to the world. And the role of the divine servant reveals the faithfulness of God through an everlasting covenant. But I want us to close this morning by also seeing that not only does he. He reveal the faithfulness of God through an everlasting covenant. But the everlasting covenant brings the blessing and joy of covenant relationship. And this blessing and joy of covenant relationship, it, it calls us to delight in God. As God's people, the calling for us is to uh, to take joy and to take delight in walking with him and, and serving him and following him. In fact, in verse 10, where it says, I will rejoice greatly in the in the Lord, my soul will exalt in my God. This is speaking about an ecstatic joy. I remember as a child when we were uh, going on family vacation, we, they had been planning it for a while. And about two weeks ahead of time, our parents told us where we were going. We were going to Disney World and it produced this just this ecstatic joy. I mean, as the days drew closer, we I mean, we couldn't sleep at night. We were so excited about going to Disney World. I remember the first time I got my the first truck that I, I got when I was in high school. I mean, I was I was ecstatic over this truck. I mean, man, I had a set of wheels and now I was able to have some freedom. I could go where I wanted to go as long as I put, could put gas in the tank. I, I remember also the the time that I wanted to propose to Tara. I was ecstatic. I was overjoyed about this time that I was going to be able to to propose. And, and then the, the wedding, I, I was ecstatic. I was I was overjoyed with the wedding that was coming up. And I remember the time when we had our first son and our second son and our third son and our first daughter. And for each of those times, man, I was ecstatic. I was full of joy. I was and I was ready to see this new life. And I remember the first time the Saints won the Super Bowl. I was ecstatic. Man, I was jumping up and down. I'm sure most of you were as well. When was the last time we reflected on our great salvation in Christ? And the wonderful covenant relationship that he has provided for us. And been that ecstatic. See, here's the point. God desires his people living in covenant relationship with him to enjoy his presence. And I'm going to tell you something this morning. Unless we're walking in obedience to Christ. Confessing and dismissing sin out of our life. We are not going to have joy. In this covenant relationship with Christ. Because God desires that his people walk in holiness and purity. God desires that we would be a kingdom of priests to worship him and to praise him and to to serve him. And so this morning, if you're sitting in here 
and the struggle in your heart is you're holding on to sin with one hand and you're wanting to serve God with the other. You've got to let go of sin before you can hold on to God. You've got to let go of of that thing which is holding you in bondage before you can experience that real joy of walking and serving the Lord. And believer, unless you're ready to let go of that sin and confess it before God, let me tell you, if you let go of it, God will meet you and he will he will strengthen you to follow him and he will deliver you from bondage. He will liberate you from captivity. Hear the promise of God's word. Hear the promise of the Messiah. He will liberate you. Give you freedom from the imprisonment. You've got to let go, believer. That's for the believer because the Holy Spirit of God dwells within the believer and he divinely empowers and gives the believer the strength and the the power in order to resist him, to to flee temptation. For those who don't have this covenant relationship with Christ, the first step this morning is to enter into covenant relationship with Christ because if you're not in covenant relationship with Christ, if you've not come to a place in life where you've surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ and He is the sovereign ruler of your life, you've repented of sin and trusted in Him and not given him a half burnt offering, but the whole burnt offering, given him all of yourself, committed all of yourself to him, unless, unless that's where you've been, then you need to enter a covenant relationship with the Messiah. The passage closes with the illustration or the, the picture of the, the bridegroom decking himself with garland. And the bride adorning herself with jewels, ready, excited about this day. The bridegroom has sent the bride the, the, the clothing that she's going to wear. And as she gets it, she puts it on. And, and as she is so excited, she's jubilant. And she's heading and proceeding to the bridegroom's home so that there can be festivities. And when the bridegroom sees the bride, there is this great rejoicing that happens. There is this ecstatic rejoicing that happens. This is the portrait that we as the people of God have with Christ, our bridegroom. We, the church, the bride, Christ himself fitting us and making us holy by the washing of water with the word as Ephesians chapter 5 speaks. Hear the faithfulness of God as we close this morning. Verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise before all nations, or to spring up before all nations. You see, the faithfulness of God commands His people to praise Him. And if nature is so faithful as to produce a sprout whenever the seed is sown into the ground, how much more faithful is our Creator to produce within us this joy and this everlasting covenant to those who have trusted in Him and surrendered to Him? Christ's coming, His advent has given us an eternal covenant with the Father that will endure for ever. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Could your life be considered as being a light to the nations? 
Can it be said of you that you're growing in character that's in the likeness of God? Are you in need of a physician or a healer to bandage your soul this morning? Have you been liberated from the bondage of sin? Has your soul been set free from imprisonment to death? Do you know the Messiah? Do you know this servant that this passage is speaking about? Are you experiencing the joy of Christ this Advent season? I want to close in prayer and allow you time to reflect on on those questions. And allow you time to do business with the Lord and surrender some things to him that, that you're maybe holding with this hand and needing to let go of so that you can walk with God faithfully. And I'll be down front if, if you need someone to pray with or answer any questions about this covenant relationship with God. And I want to invite you to respond as the Lord leads you this morning. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you, pray that you would strengthen us to respond to your leading. I pray that you would help us to know the joy of the eternal covenant that you have made this Advent season. And Lord Jesus, as we look forward to your return, we are expectant and we are excited and hopeful. Help us, God. Help us each day to to go about the day with a level of excitement because of the the wonderful salvation that you have given us and the hope that we have in you. And so we pray, God, that you would strengthen us this morning to walk with you and to follow you and to uh, to go with you as you lead us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?